0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 13th, we are studying 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18-25. to St. Peter continues his table of duties for Christians in their various stations in life today by addressing servants. Their lives, like the lives of all Christians, are shaped by the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Vandercook, let's talk a little context. We're in First Peter chapter 2, the very end of the chapter. What do we need to know about the letter, what Peter's been saying so far, going into our text today?
1: Well, the letter is, a uh, you know, it falls in what we call kind of the general epistles or the Catholic epistles that are not written in particular to a single congregation, as we find, or a single individual, as we find with uh, Paul's letters, uh, but rather had a more of a general audience. And, you know, uh, Peter indicates in the opening verses of his book that uh, it's written to the uh, diaspora or the uh dispersion the 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 Christians that have been dispersed uh over the uh, over the region or over the world and uh you know it that that term is often used to refer to uh jewish Christians the jewish dispersion uh that happened as a result of the uh exile of especially the Uh, the northern tribes of Israel, but um, here um, uh, it is used to describe Christians who've been scattered uh, for one reason or another, and and in fact, it appears that Peter is primarily even writing to Gentile Christians. Um, But uh, here, as we move into these verses that we're discussing today, uh, Peter has just been um, uh, describing how people ought to relate to their governing officials— uh, and now he brings a little bit closer to home, moving uh, away from that and looking more into the um, you know, to the household uh, and and the relationship we have with those uh, that we are or household or place of employment maybe is a better place to put it. I want to give it away just yet yeah, where we're where we're going to go, but uh, but that certainly is uh, is where it's headed uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, he brings it down to that, and then, of course, in the verses that follow what we're going to sc- discuss today, he's actually going to get into the uh, relationship between husband and wife. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's a definite movement in this, what, what I've called a table of duties. We see these in Paul sometimes, and I think Peter's doing something similar here, but there's a movement, like you said, from that wider scope, what does it mean to live as a Christian underneath the governing authorities for, say, you know, the Roman Empire in Peter's case, or or for us, you know, a country or a state or even a city, and, and moving closer to home, closer to those more close relationships that we have here within a household or a place of employment. And then last of all, as we'll look at tomorrow, the relationship between a husband and a wife. And and so how do we live as Christians in the midst of that? I I like that you brought up again, this context of Peter writing to these elect exiles in the dispersion, because I, I think as we dig into today's text, and it was there yesterday too, I think we start to see some of the influence of why Peter talks about these Christians as exiles. And, and I'm thinking about some of the experiences that the people of Israel had in exile. They're more and there. I suppose I should say Judah, the Southern kingdom. And, and from what we know of the way that they lived in exile, some of the things that the prophets told them to do some of the record of what we know that they did do during the exile. I think we see a, a bit of a, a parallel, to their experience in exile and the way Peter instructs us to live in in exile as Christians here in this relationship that we've got between, as we'll see, servants and masters, employees and employers, and and even within, I, I think we can say more broadly, with any authority that's over us on a, a person more of a personal level. I think yesterday's text was more a, a broad level. Today seems, I think it's very similar it's going to speak specifically between servants and masters, but I think there's a broader application.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, uh, you know, yeah, bringing it closer to home uh, than we were before. Yeah.
0: So let's take a look at the text that we've got today. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That's our text for today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So, Pastor Vanderkoek, Peter begins to address the way that servants ought to live in relationship to their masters. Now, as Americans living in the 21st century, we hear words like servant or slave and master, and we have a certain picture in our minds that is colored by American history, what, when when the scriptures speak of servants, masters, and particularly as Peter speaks of servants and masters here, how do we how do we think about what Peter's talking about? What, what does, just kind of generally speaking, and I know we don't have time for a, a huge development of this, but when the scriptures talk about this relationship, what are they talking about?
1: Yeah, well, there is a very important distinction to be made there, because... Uh, obviously our our nation does have that that history with um you know having a very specific group of people from a very specific continent that were enslaved and and bought and sold as as common property um and there certainly are maybe some uh some similarities in those relationships between servants and masters that we'd find here described by my peter but there's probably far more differences and really it's probably a better thing to think about is is to think of employee-employer uh, relationships here rather than uh, slave and master um, because, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have people being... Um, it, it's, it, there's a, there's, there's a stark difference, let's just say, uh, between what we saw in the slave trade uh, of, of Africans coming to the, uh, uh, you know, North America or other parts of the world for that matter, too, um, you know up through the 19th century versus um, uh, of what we're, what we're talking about here. It really is more of a this is how employees ought to relate to their employers.
0: Right. And I, I think as as it as Peter talks about this, just to kind of look at this uh, this text as a whole, he he applies it in a way such that it fits it fits us as Christians. Regardless of what kind of employment we have or, or exactly what our station in life is, somewhere along the way, we are going to find ourselves in a relationship where we have authority over us. And, and this part of this table of duties, I think, is meant to teach us how do we live under an individual who has authority over us. In a specific situation, employer-employee, but I think I think we can use it more broadly as well. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I would agree that yeah, you can certainly use it more broadly, uh, especially when we consider, um, yeah, when you consider all the different stations in life that we have, uh, that that we have those those relationships with people that are uh, generally in authority with us, and that's really kind of a 4th commandment thing for us Christians, where we look at um, the way that we, um, you know, we honor our father and our mother, uh, but of course we've always understood that to also include all other authorities uh, that God gives us, and uh, and wherever we find ourselves under another's authority, how are we to act as God's people?
0: So as Peter begins then in verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Maybe a little bit, we were talking about this before we started recording, the word for servants here isn't as what seems to be as strong of a word as sometimes we encounter when we we meet a servant or a slave in the scriptures. What What is Peter talking about with the servants masters here?
1: Yeah, the the common uh, the common Greek word for, probably most common Greek word for slave or for servant is uh, is doulos. Uh and here there is a word that's related to uh, the uh, the noun for um house which is oikos in Greek and here the uh the, the servant the word for uh, servant is uh oiketai, uh or literally house servant uh so you have basically somebody that's included as a member of the household Now, of course, we we, we usually tend to associate people that have house servants today as being uh, the extremely wealthy in society uh, or something like that, but they have the butler and the maid and so forth that that lives there at the house. But um, uh, here, you know, you you might extend it to, uh, I guess, maybe in a more modern and perhaps down-to-earth type thing for some of our our listeners might be if you have a farmhand or something like that uh, that is... Uh, that is there. Uh, anybody that, that works for you, or, or that you work for—I I should say rather—as we're looking at this in the way that it's addressed, uh, anybody that you work for uh, is going to be in that role. Uh, but there is also a, a sense in which we're, you know—you're uh, part of a household in this thing. Uh, so this is somebody that is that is a master over you that you're also—you um, uh, know—have have a closer relationship with than just a typical. Uh, other person. I'm not sure where
0: I'm going with that or if that makes any sense. Well, it, it does. And, and I think it's kind of, it, it is difficult, I think, for us in our context to to really put some flesh and bones on that. What does that mean? Because so often our households are our very immediate family, you know, a wife and children, and that's it. There's not really el- anyone else that's that's living with us directly under our authority. As as you were talking though, I, I think maybe and this is kind of what I was trying to say with a a more general application, maybe something like if you're if you're a garbage man, that's that's kind of you know, you you serve those people. And it it's a lower station you know, I mean that's I used and garbage well and we're going to talk about this because I think the way that that Peter speaks here really elevates what we would think as a very lowly position into something it's a place where godly service can be done and it really ends up elevating these lowly places but maybe you know if, if I'm a if I'm a garbage man or a, a mailman I'm the the checker at the grocery store or the person bagging the groceries those kinds of, of roles where I'm I'm in that relationship of service, to someone else and, and I mean, I know those are again that's that's the employment world i'm I'm really not I'm struggling to figure out how to put that into the household world because that's just not the same way we think, but I think some of those examples fit with the with what
1: Peter's going to say here well, yeah, and i and i maybe I may be taking this a little bit too far, but in a sense. Uh, you know, when you're talking to a, a group of Christians—now, of course, in, in Peter's context, he may not have been dealing with—in uh, fact, it's very, very likely that some of the servants that he's writing to, their, their masters, may not have been Christians at all. Right. Um, but, you know, I think you can sometimes look at it as how um, you have—we have this sense of equality on the one hand with all people— uh, you know, and that's that's what you have Paul writing about in Galatians three, where he talks about how there is neither Jew nor Greek, um, slave nor free, male nor female, etc. And you know, of course, the understanding there is that um, according to our salvation, there is this sense of equality. Um, and I guess where I'm going with that is the idea that we, as at least as Christians, we're all part of the household of God. But within that household, we have this division. Um, of you know some people are at a higher station than others, uh and that's just kind of the reality of life uh but this is this is part of the order uh that God gives us in the world that uh, that helps us uh do that and so Peter here has really given us a way to shape what it means to love our neighbor uh in the sense of uh the how does how does the servant best love their their neighbor, uh, in, in particular, in this case, how's the servant? Uh, and, and you know, the fact is that loving our neighbor is, of course, an ex- is is loving God, uh, because uh, the you know the the second table of the law is explaining how it is that we actually keep uh, the first commandment. You know, how how we show that uh, show our love. For God, we love our neighbor.
0: Hmm. I, th- I think part of maybe w- one of the ways to go off what you're saying about the Galatians passage and, and what's going on here, and then other table of duties, is the word that's translated, be subject, you know, servants be subject to your masters. I think I picked this up from being a part of doxology, the the group within the uh, Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod that really provides training for pastors and for laity concerning spiritual care matters. It's a, it's a fantastic Training program. I would recommend it to anyone. And and the suggestion there was that when we think about being subject, maybe a better way to think about it is is the word to be subordinate. That because subordinate has the idea of order in it. So find your place in the order that that God has put. I mean, and, and think about the previous text. That what, how do I relate to the government? God has established an order such that the government is there to as Peter says punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. What do I do as a Christian? For the Lord's sake, I find my place in that order. And and for the Lord's sake, what does it mean? Well, it means to honor the emperor, even even, you know, the pagan emperor that would have been in place at the time. So, how do I find my place in this order when it comes to these more personal relationships between a, a master and a servant? Well, it is to as you've been saying, to love that neighbor, to support that neighbor to to how do, how do i say this to to help him to do what what is good for him even when he's going to to mistreat me i i don't i don't know if I talked around that point or not but does that make sense
1: yeah yeah and I, I think that's kind of the direction I'm thinking too i like the i thought i like the thought of subordinate with that word order in it as well I think that's helpful to to think about um falling into order uh with the way that god has uh, where God has put us. Um, Yeah. Right. That's great.
0: Because that, that order, that created order is not is not d- disestablished. I don't know if that's the right word <laughs> that that created or is not destroyed by what God does in the redemption in Jesus Christ. According to our redemption, as you said, we are all part of the household of God. We are, we are all citizens. Peter's talked about that in the beginning of this chapter. In fact, you know, he, he talked about how in Christ, this living stone that was rejected, but now is the cornerstone in him. Now together, you are a chosen people. Well, how do you live together as that chosen people in this world, in exile even, well, there's still this order that exists. And, and we find our place in that order as Christians by showing love to the neighbors that God has put in our lives. I think that hopefully some of that clarified what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah, yeah. So now, as Peter says this, then he says servants be subject to your masters with all respect. And then this is where it gets a bit surprising, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust take us into that more surprising turn that Peter gives.
1: Well, I think, I think all of us certainly understand that, you know, we, we have the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would uh, do unto them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and so forth. Um, and, and, You know, that's that's a good rule. I mean, it's it's scriptural, it really is, uh, that we are to treat others in the way that we want to be treated. Uh, But the fact is that not everybody treats us the way that we want to be treated. Uh, And so the natural reaction um, and our our sinful flesh um, doesn't want to, uh, especially does not want to treat those who treat us poorly well. Uh, And so we tend to look for the excuse of, well I don't need to um I don't need to treat this person well because they didn't treat me well uh so they don't deserve it um, you know and this this kind of makes me think of uh the way the Pharisees uh um treated the law of God that it was the idea that uh you know, oh, I think it was in Matthew five, and I should have written this down, I just thought of it uh but you know matthew five where uh you you have heard that Jesus said you have heard that it was said uh that you should uh love your neighbor and hate your enemy or something like that. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, where do they get that? You know, God never said that. But um, you know, they were always looking for, the Pharisees especially were always looking for loopholes uh in the law of God, always trying to look for a way to get off the hook. Uh and of course there's a Pharisee inside all of us that's always looking for that loophole. I have to love my neighbor, but not not that neighbor, because that neighbor is mean to me, so I don't have to love them. Uh, but here, you know, Peter just says, Jesus did, said, no, uh, we, we love our neighbor uh, regardless of how they treat us, uh, and we love our enemy no matter how they treat us as well. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we're specifically here with the master. The fact is that um, certainly there were some masters who were uh, crooked, who were, who were evil, uh, who did not treat their servants well, and so the servants might very well feel that, hey, they're justified in uh, in not obeying that master, uh, but, but here Peter sets them straight and says, no, even if that master is there. And of course, the reason for that, again, it, it comes down to where did their authority come from? Their authority came from God. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're using that authority rightly, uh, or that they're using it faithfully, or they're they're using it, you know, at all in a good way. But the fact is that God put them in that position of authority, and so therefore uh, we treat them as such. You know, we we treat those who are in authority over us um, with respect, uh, regardless of how they treat us, uh, because they are God's representative on earth to us.
0: Hmm. This is this is where I was thinking about some of those occupations that I mentioned earlier, because those are ones I, you know, like being a a male person or being a a bagger at a grocery store, or maybe being a a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant. I don't, it's been a while since I've been to a restaurant, honestly. So I'm not sure if that, that still is a thing, but (laughs) be that as it may, all of those are, are places where someone I think is, is in a position of authority over you and they're very likely or I should say there's a temptation, it's not that they're very likely, but there's a temptation for there to be mistreatment. Think of think of a a restaurant a patron who is is you know constantly demanding of the waiter or waitress and and who is constantly putting the waiter or waitress down, maybe doesn't leave a good tip, all those ways that you can mistreat someone in that position of service. What's what's the temptation for that person? As you know, well, I'm not gonna not gonna give them the best service, or I'm not going to to show respect and deference to them. What is what is the call from from Peter here and from our Lord? I think you're exactly right to go to the Sermon on the Mount there to show love to those who mistreat us. I mean that's that's something that that stands out in this world. It's not the way that we're that, that our sinful natures are programmed to work.
1: Yeah, well, and I was I was going to say too. Whenever you're talking about the uh, uh, the waiter or the waiters, uh, they, they might feel they don't need to treat the person with respect, or worse, you know, mm. they may even try to bring harm upon them by uh, by doing something extra nefarious to the food that they serve to them, or something like that, you know. So, uh, so yeah, it gets even worse. The temptation is there to uh, to to, uh, to seek revenge. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what our old Adam constantly wants to do, is to seek
0: revenge. I, I think, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is a, a great connection. I've noticed this, and I should have written these things down, because I've been thinking about this as I've been going through 1 Peter here, that there's there's several parts where I think Peter has in his mind some of the things he heard from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the, the one example that comes to mind right away is in the previous chapter, where Peter was quoting from Leviticus, in fact, that, you know, the be holy as I am holy I think fits in with what Jesus says in Matthew 5 you know you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect so I think there's I think there's echoes of the sermon on the mount here in 1 Peter I need to I need to write them down so I can remember them for later the other thing that I think we can hear an echo of here goes to the the exile and and think about some of the ways that the Lord told his people to behave in exile and here I'm thinking of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, you know, we, we know Jeremiah 29, 11, for, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. And, and that kind of gets ripped out of its context, but in the context, what, what Jeremiah tells those exiles is quite striking. And I think it fits with what Peter's got here. So among, among other things, well, let's see, Jeremiah 29 verse seven, I think is probably the, the one that really hits it as close. Jeremiah says to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find welfare. Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah tells his people while they're in exile to actually seek the welfare of that city. Remember that, that city Babylon, that by the way, burned the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, stole all of the holy vessels of the Lord, that city Jeremiah says, "Pray for that city, seek its welfare." Which is just, I mean, hmm. whoa! I mean, that's that's an astounding thing. And I think, I think it fits right into this context as well. Peter having said to the Christians, "You guys are elect exiles. What are you going to do when someone mistreats you? Keep treating them with respect. Seek their good." It's, I mean, it's, I think it's, a, I think there's a parallel there.
1: Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a great comparison to the uh, to the Babylonian exile. I appreciate that.
0: Well, and, and then the other, I mean, just to, to another thought, you know, with that, you know, you've got the example of the book of, of Daniel, for example, where you, you have men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel himself, who are put in service of the Babylonian king. I think theirs fits as a, a really good example, as, as Peter's going to continue here in a little while and talk about, you know, what does it mean to suffer for doing good? Those are examples of men who, who did not compromise at the the spots where they could have, when it came to their faith, and yet they still treated those over them with this same gentleness and respect. I I I don't know. I maybe I think after these studies of, of First, Second Peter, Jude, we're going to do something in the in the prophets or that this exilic area because I think there's I think there's some connections there.
1: Yeah. Well, I, and I was. That's. I think that I would totally agree too. With the, the well, what I was saying when you mentioned Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Benego is just what fine examples uh, they were of exactly what Paul's talking about. Because you know, whatever they were, um, uh, whatever these guys that were trying to, uh, uh, you know, the other leaders of uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar were trying to get uh, Daniel in particular, they were trying to get him in trouble. They had to. They basically had to manufacture some way to get him in trouble, you know, because they couldn't find anything that was dishonorable about him. Uh, so there's so there's got to be some way that we can get these guys in trouble, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I really think the, the parallels between this letter and those examples are striking. We can pull more out from that in this text and elsewhere in First Peter. We're going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron, talking to Pastor David Vandercook about First Peter chapter 2. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharp Iron. It is Tuesday, April 13th. We're studying 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we're talking about verse 18. Peter surprisingly tells servants to be subject to their masters even when the master is unjust. And then he begins to explain that in the following verses. He says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What's Peter saying there?
1: Well, yeah, you know, the definition of, uh, you know, we have grace being some grace implies that something is undeserved. Uh, And if we're only going to obey our master whenever they're kind to us, well, then you could say that they deserve that kindness, uh, but that's not grace. Uh, it's it's great. It's truly a gracious thing, as Peter says. It's truly a gracious thing whenever we actually obey the master who is not gracious to us or not kind to us. Uh, that's whenever that that's really whenever you're doing the thing that is undeserved when you're showing true grace.
0: Mm. So the the a few words in there that maybe. Re- offer a little bit of of commentary. The word for suffering there, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What kind of suffering does Peter have in mind?
1: Yeah, well, he's, you know, it ties it together really nicely with the suffering of of Christ, um, which is going to come out as we go a little further on here, of course, more explicitly. But um, it's that word "pascon" um, in Greek, uh, or "pascon" in Greek, that uh, that it, that is that is translated as suffering, which is also, of course, tied to. We might hear the word "Paschal" in there, uh, that we we use for Easter, like the Paschal candle that we light during Easter, and so forth. Uh, so I mean, it's pointing to the suffering of Christ. So just as Christ suffered we are called to suffer uh, as Christians as well. Uh, We're not called to um, a theology of glory where we are uh, living a uh, comfortable life, but rather we're called to a life of of suffering as Christians.
0: Mm. Yeah, Peter's really, I mean, he he makes that quite explicit, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but in verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called, which I, I think is this is something that we forget as Christians, that God's, number 1 goal for our lives is not our happiness at least not in the way that we typically conceive of happiness he he calls us to suffer and again thinking you know thinking through peter's own experience as a disciple of jesus maybe on on peter's mind here some of those words he heard from jesus you know to be a disciple is to pick up your cross and follow me jesus says and and that that becomes i mean that's what these servants are doing. That's what we're doing in our lives as Christians when we suffer even unjustly. And, and again, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because Peter's really going to expound upon that following verse 21. So that, let's keep going in verse 20. Peter writes, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is, I find this verse interesting and maybe not the way we always think, because Peter uses words like a credit, you know, and, and this is a gracious thing in God's sight. As, as I'm living in this life, I'm thinking about what is, what is this going to look like before God, the way that I'm suffering right now. Take us into to verse 20.
1: Well, yeah, and we're talking about, um, you know, something in the sight of God. You know, what what does God desire of us? Uh, you know, how does, how does he desire us to live? Uh, and, of course, you know, the easiest thing to point to is point to the Ten Commandments. That shows us how we live as God's people. Um, but, you know, by extension of that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're talking a lot about, you know, Fourth Commandment-type things here uh, with those who are in authority. And so whenever those who are in authority speak to us, they are speaking on behalf of God, because God is the one who has given them that authority. And so when a master tells us uh, to do something, uh, we are obeying not just him, but we're also obeying God. Uh, And therefore, that makes it a good work in the sight of God. This is where we get the idea of uh, bringing dignity, as as I think we mentioned earlier in our conversation, Mm -hmm. bringing dignity to all stations in life. Uh, because we have in our minds sometimes what a good work is, uh, and and sometimes that, that list is very narrow uh, of what, what consists of a good work. Well, here even, we have the idea that uh, anything that is done in obedience to those in authority over us can be considered a good work, because that is something that God has given us. And so uh, God looks kindly upon that um you know regardless again of whether that authority is acting in an honorable or dishonorable way
0: mm. yeah i mean it's it's really striking to to see that how this reversal maybe to think of it like that the reversal that happens because of god's word you know when when god gives you something to do no matter what it looks like to this world no matter how humiliating it looks to this world it is a good thing because it has His word attached to it, and so to even to suffer injustice because of God, and I think that's that's a, a pretty key thing, you know, in the sight of God. There in verse twenty, or oh, where was it? Mindful of God, as it's translated in verse nineteen, that we're doing these things specifically because we know what God has given us to do. That even the most humiliating of tasks, done under what seems or, or what is often just complete unjust use of authority in God's sight. That is a, a holy good work. I mean, that that's just, that's an astounding reversal. It's not the way we think I, I'm reminded of, of that, of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples after, it's James and John who come to Jesus asking for the positions on his right and his left and his glory. And, and of course he tells them they don't know what they're asking. And then all the disciples kind of get in on the conversation because they, they're mad at James and John for having asked this before they got the chance to do so. And and Jesus tells them, you know, whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. Whoever would be first must be last. And And here I think, I mean, it's like Peter's drawing on all of these things that he's heard from the Lord as he's applying it and preaching it to Christians in exile right now. So, Pastor VanderCook, Cook, let's see. We are now in verse 21, and this is where Peter really begins to draw this and connect it to who Christ is. And, and what he's done. So he says very specifically, to this you've been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Take us into the words of Peter there and some of the pictures that he paints for us.
1: Yeah, well, um, yeah, here's where you get the explicit tie into the suffering of Christ. You know, I I, I noticed, and i probably noticed this before, but just as we're going through this again, and I'm looking at my notes again. Each of these verses, 18, 19, and 20, or uh, 18, tw- I'm sorry, 19, 20, and 21, all start with the word for, mm. you know? So it's basically tying it back to the previous verse. So there's this common link here, of course, it's running all the way back to, to verse 18, uh, to the very beginning. So it's just, it's further building upon it. And so, you know, it's it's tying it all together. And here, uh, the reason that we are um, suffering in the end is because Christ also suffered for us, leaving you an example. Now, of course, we, we want to emphasize always when we talk about Christ and his suffering, we want to emphasize, first of all, the fact that uh, it was for us, for our benefit, um, you know, and that it, you know, so there as as our redeemer as the one who died for us shedding his blood for us that we might uh, uh be redeemed from sin death and the devil but there is also that that christ as example thing now that that has been overplayed in the past of course among um uh in many areas of christianity but uh but we we can't discount that either the fact that christ is leaving us an example to follow uh and so here uh there, there's a word there that, that almost looks like the word program. You know, Christ, Jesus is setting the example or the program for us of how we ought to live uh, and how we ought to live in, in relationship to others. And he's going to build on that in the next few verses. Uh, but the idea is that, hey, Christ suffered uh, and he showed you this is the way it is. This this is how it is for people who would follow me. Uh, you know, And, of course, he said this to the disciples when he told them, that if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, you mm. know? Uh, so there is this implication that this is what it's going to mean. I'm setting the example for you, uh, and the idea is that uh, you're you're going to follow that example, mm. whether it's by—and sometimes it's not going to be by choice either. In fact, most of the time it probably won't be by choice. Mm. Uh, you know, the disciples suffer— well, why do they suffer? Well, because they're they're Christians, you know. Why did Jesus suffer? Did he, did he walk into a, a trap, you know, on purpose? Um, well, I mean, no. Uh, he suffered just simply for being who he was. Why was Jesus crucified? Well, they put his charge right up there on the cross. Uh, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. He died for being who he was. Uh, and the same thing is true for us Christians. Uh, we'll suffer, and sometimes our suffering isn't going to have any rhyme or reason to it it's going to be a matter of why are you suffering? Well, just because of who you are, that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I mean, think about the specific, and this, I do think this is where the text really begins to broaden and, and apply not just specifically to servants' masters, but very, very broadly to all Christians. But to use that specific situation to which Peter's writing, you think about these these servants, very likely what happened was the gospel was preached, the servant came to faith, was given faith through the Holy Spirit by the preaching of the gospel, but the Master wasn't. That's just the way it happened. Suddenly you've got a Christian, you've got a non-Christian, and and what happens? There is suffering. They, They suffer unjustly, as Peter says. What do you do? You bear that cross, because that is what Christ did for you, and and to the you know you've got Christ as as savior and Christ as example, and Peter puts them side by side here. I think it's it's quite marvelous. You know you're you're right that I I think there there have been times in the history of Christianity where Christ as example was way overplayed, and and that was all that was preached and that was all that was was thought about. I think there are also times where where perhaps. We as as Lutherans are prone to forget Christ as example because we, we want to preach Christ as Savior. And that's not wrong. We we have to preach Christ as Savior. If we don't preach that, we're not preaching Christianity. But we can't forget the way that that the scriptures do speak of Christ as example. And I love the the language that Peter uses here because he he gives us these two wonderful images, you know, that, that one word that has it kind of looks like like program. Or you you see in that from from some of my reading in in some commentaries, uh, Linsky's commentary mentions this that that perhaps the picture there is that you've got imagine like when your kids are learning to write, and and they've got two lines of that you know that nice tall lined lined paper that's got plenty of room for them to learn to write, and on top is written maybe you know a series of the letter A, all capital A's, and underneath is a blank line, and they are there to. To pr- the line is there so that they can practice writing the A, just as they see it in that in that top line. That that's one of the the images that Peter gives us with that that it's hypogramon, right? That to write underneath. That's that's kind of the the picture there. Or then to the second image, you know, to walk in his steps. I mean, the, and there, like you said, w- what were the steps of Jesus? Well, he he carried his cross. I mean, that's that's just those two very powerful images. For, for the way we think about when I look at Christ, how do, I, how do I see him? Well, first I see him as the one who suffered for me. And then as I look at that suffering, now in my own life, how do I, how do I copy his writing or how do I follow in his footsteps? Those are the, the two pictures that Peter gives us. I think it's quite marvelous.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's great. I think it's I think it's wonderful the way he plays the two together and uh yeah, and it's true. We we've got to preach both. We've got to be able to preach both the uh uh Christ as Savior and Christ as example. That was the word I couldn't come up with earlier. Christ as Savior, but a uh, uh, simple enough one, but yeah. Uh that's that's definitely what uh what you see here from Peter.
0: So he and then Peter he I mean, he really he he gives us the picture then of what Christ's suffering looked like. So, if you know, if we're trying to to follow the the letters that he wrote, if we're trying to walk in his steps, well, well, what does that look like? And he really gets into that in verses 22 and following. I'll start with 22 and 23. He committed no sin; neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Take us into those two verses.
1: yeah, well, obviously these are going to be really familiar this time uh, this time of year as we've just come out of out of Lent. Uh, Isaiah, you know because Peter really shows himself here to be uh, you know a, a great preacher, of course he is. Uh, but it's um, you know this is this is quoting quoting, paraphrasing if you i guess uh Isaiah um you know and a lot of times in the new testament we run into uh situations where a writer will directly quote um um a uh some of the scriptures some of the old testament scriptures but here this is more of a, a paraphrase and uh, you know uh, i i know that i as, as a pastor will sometimes do that I'll I'll paraphrase stuff and sometimes i do it without even really thinking about it uh and i and i like to think that that's probably what's going on here with peter as well uh is that he knows the scriptures well, and he knows that this is a time to uh draw his ears back into the scriptures of the old Testament, and that would have been their scriptures at that point in time. they didn't have a New Testament yet really, uh except for the letters they're receiving but uh you know so so you have that and um but but we see the fact that uh you know when Christ suffers again, he suffers innocently. Uh, he doesn't deserve this. And in addition to that, he doesn't strike back uh, whenever, whenever he suffers either. Again, setting that example uh, for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, Peter has on multiple occasions really shown his his knowledge of the Old Testament, as you said, sometimes quoting it and then sometimes just alluding to it, and and here it's it's almost like it's right in between that because it's it's just so plainly from Isaiah fifty three. One of the things that I, I do love about about Peter, as I've been reading here, is is the way that he's able to to draw from particular parts of what Christ has done depending on, on what's needed. You know, at the very beginning of, of 1 Peter, he was really preaching the resurrection of Jesus, that, that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you know, you too will be raised from the dead. You have this imperishable hope, and that, that theme of resurrection really, you know, came out very, pretty strong in, in chapter 1. And now here in, in chapter 2, as he's, as he's teaching Christians what it means to live, when they're suffering, what does he, he do? He, he focuses a lot more on the passion of Christ from Monday, Thursday and good Friday. It's just, it, and this is maybe just me sort of as a, as a preacher uh, geeking out a little bit, but like, it's really cool to see how, how Peter just m- masterfully, you know, preaches here, the, the good news. One of the things that, that really came to my mind here as I, as I was thinking about this whole context, so you tell me what you think is that I, as I'm picturing this in my mind of, of Jesus, you know, he committed no sin there was no deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. You know, when in Jesus' life did he do these things? My And, and having just studied the gospel of Mark here on Sharper Iron, the, the moment that came to my mind was the moment when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. I, I really think you could pick a lot of spots in the passion that would fit. But the reason my mind went there is because as the way Mark records it, he puts the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin side by side with what's happening with Peter and his denial. And I, I wonder if some of what Peter has preached here is, is coming out of that a a reflection on, and I mean, this is speculation, I know, but I, I wonder if, if he's reflecting a bit on that, that, you know, here I was, I was afraid of suffering for the sake of Jesus, but what was he doing all along? Well, he was doing all these things, not just to set an example for me, but actually for me. I, I mean, I I know yeah. that's that's speculation, I know, but I, I, I want to see a parallel there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, it might be speculation, but I think it's a nice thought. I really do. I enjoy, I, I, I appreciate that uh, because I think there is kind of, you, you do see that contrast there, of course, in Mark, between uh, Jesus who has every right to deny everything that's being told to him, uh, everything that's being testified against him, And at the same time, you have Peter who uh, won't even admit that he knows the guy, you know, uh, and in fact, vehemently denies it. He doesn't just stay silent and not answer. He actually vehemently denies the fact that he knows him. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that you have that one and the same Peter here, um, uh, you know, pulling that example out, I think that's a beautiful picture. That might be speculation, but I think there's I think there's there's definitely something of a parallel there for sure
0: under under verse twenty three where where Peter says, you know when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. and in, in the notes you sent me, you got a, a quote from Luther here what what does what does Luther have to say about this passage?
1: Yeah so so here's what, here's what Luther said on this. So you might say, do you mean to say that I should justify those who wrong me and say they have done well? Answer, no, but you should say, I will suffer this very willingly, even though I have not deserved it, and you are not doing me an injustice. I will suffer it for my Lord's sake. He also suffered injustice for me. You should leave the matter to God, just as Christ leaves it to his Heavenly Father. God is a is a just judge. He will reward it richly. And thus far Luther on that, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he brings out that point that, again, um, you know, we we suffer, and it's not that we're saying that uh, the suffering is right and that they're they're right in in hurting me and they're right in causing this suffering, but rather that we're willingly suffering it, and we're, willing, we're willingly suffering it because of the Lord. Uh, he suffered injustice for me, and therefore I also will suffer injustice. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I think I that, can't ever read I can't ever read words like that without thinking about Paul Gerhardt's hymn a lamb, a, a lamb goes uncomplaining oh, yeah. forth so yeah yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah which I mean and there's that hymn certainly has you know Isaiah 53 all all throughout it the the lamb goes uncomplaining yeah. forth yeah I think I think that that quote from Luther is is helpful because in I think in, in our own context today when when we see that I that we're you know when I'm personally suffering injustice I I want to point it out so quickly and because, I, you know, it's like we, we think if I suffer this, then they're going to think that they're justified. And Luther says, well, well, no, it doesn't mean they're justified. Rather, what, what you're saying is, is you're doing this for the Lord's sake, that it, it's more important for you to, to remain true to the Lord, what he's done for you, than it is for you to well, justify yourself to prove yourself right. Rather, let God be the one to justify you. And and if someone is going to cause you to suffer even an injustice, then then so be it. You have a just judge in heaven. I think you, you used the word uh, revenge or vengeance earlier, and I think that you know, the Scripture's teaching to leave vengeance to the Lord, I think, plays in beautifully with, with what Peter's got here.
1: Yeah, and also, you know, just the fact that as Christians— we're not concerned about, um, what, what the world, what the world thinks of us. Um, you know, we're not concerned with what's going to happen to us, even in this world, because our focus is always on the life of the world to come. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, you know, obviously we, we live in this world and we, we love our neighbor and we, those, those are things that we do, but ultimately we don't seek reward. And we don't seek glory here. We don't seek revenge here. Uh, rather our focus is always has, is always on Christ and his second coming uh, and the fact that uh, that is where things will be made right uh, rather than trying to um, overexert ourselves on trying to make everything right here.
0: Peter concludes this section again, preaching Christ, but now applying it again to us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, we've got some references to Isaiah fifty-three. What is what is Peter saying in these closing verses of our text today?
1: Yeah, again, um, it really is just a further extension of what was uh, what was above there. Uh, we might die to sin and live uh, to righteousness. Some baptismal language there as well. That. Uh, the fact that we have been baptized with Christ, and therefore we were buried, and to borrow from Paul now, uh, buried with him in bat- through baptism into death in order that we might be uh, raised to new life in him. Uh, and so, you know, that's happened. We've been healed by him. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, now that means that uh, we, having been justified, having been um, baptized, having been made the children of God, this is how we live. Uh, we live as as those who have now been uh, returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Uh, and that means that uh, we live the life of the Christian, which means that uh, we um, serve our masters, uh, and it does often imply, quite frankly, suffering in this world.
0: Those those two terms that Peter uses there in verse 25 for Jesus, that he's the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, I think, you know, perfectly fit this context of of a servant who's serving under an unjust master that that who is who's the true shepherd of the Christian who's the true overseer of the Christian it is it is ultimately Christ himself and Christ is the one who's suffered and died for the Christian he is the the perfect shepherd the perfect overseer Pastor Vanderkirk, we just about 2 minutes left here on the morning any points we missed and and then help us to to wrap this text up give us the good news of Christ crucified and risen
1: Yeah you know um just again that this is you know i think this this text fits so well um you know i'm not sure you know i mentioned to you before we started recording that a portion of this text appears in the in the historic lectionary coming up at the end of april fourth sunday in in easter not sure if this appears in the well i actually do remember that part of it appears in the uh, through your lectionary because I, I noted that somewhere. But uh but at any rate, uh the timing of this in relationship to Easter I think is 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 lovely. Uh and that's because we have this idea of of Peter writing this letter again to those who are you know, newly converted Christians, or at least recently, and maybe I'm using that term loosely, but you have these recently converted Christians, and and now he's giving them further instructions. Hey, now that you, you know that you have uh, been justified by Christ, now what? Now this is how you live. Uh, this is how you live in relationship to to others and you know of course this is just part of a larger section but uh but it illustrates that uh you know so beautifully that hey now that now that you're part of uh the christian faith this is how you live for christians now in the church today you know historically you know i had the i had the pleasure of uh, of um confirming my my oldest daughter this past weekend Traditionally, the the time of Lent has been a time of of repentance and a time of catechesis uh, for God's people. And then Easter, uh, historically the Easter Vigil, was when uh, the the newly um, catechized Christians would be brought into the church uh, through baptism, through confirmation. And now we have this period of instruction. We even see this with uh, with Jesus and his disciples, that Jesus... um, Uh, You know, he he teaches his disciples after his resurrection for those 40 days before he ascends. And so now we hear this instruction for us that now that we've heard, again, uh, the good news of the resurrection, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, now how do we live? How do we live in this world um, as we await um, Christ's second coming?
0: Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas, helping us this morning with 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 to 25. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharathon is coming here on KFUO April 22nd through April 24th. We would love to have you partner with us as we proclaim Christ crucified for you anytime anywhere. Join us April 22nd through 24th for Share-a-thon here on KFUO. Thanks for spending the morning with us today. Talk to you again tomorrow.